Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the salvation that was secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the seal and guarantor of that salvation. That all those that love Jesus have you in their hearts. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use this time uh, for our good. That you would direct my words and anoint my speech um, so that it builds the kingdom of God. And I pray for everyone listening that they may hear truths that are helpful, that they'll be able to apply to their lives and um, that would uh, sort of sustain them in these strange times. God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Excellent. So uh, last week we um, read of how Paul was um, ashore at the port of Miletus uh, and we heard how he stopped there um, to give like these final words of guidance. Uh, he called the uh, church leaders from Ephesus to him and he was uh, sort of kind of presenting uh, his last will and testament uh, um, to them and so they were uh, pointed words and, and, and strategic words and words that he really hoped uh, would uh, uh, work for them and, and, and cause the church in uh, Ephesus to grow. And uh, uh, after he'd done this, there was this uh, emotional parting. This preacher, this guy that had just been tireless for Jesus, um, is anticipating uh, imprisonment. He's anticipating hardship and uh, um, just... Uh, just brutality you know these are these are not times of uh, um, universal human rights and his friends these Christian leaders they just surround him in hugs and tears and they're just so sad to see this guy who's done so much for them leave them and, and, and move on and especially when he says he won't be seeing them again and so Luke tells us that uh, Paul uh, leaves this port of Miletus and he sets sail uh, and he's still looking forward uh, to meeting uh, um, the Christians in Jerusalem. And he's looking forward to celebrating Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem, um, along with all these other believers. A, a bit like we are sort of uh, next week. You know, we won't be um, together in person, but hopefully we're looking forward to this. Uh, uh, another um, sort of landmark uh, in our sort of uh, annual festivals. And so he reaches the holy city, this city of Jerusalem, this city of David, this one which has so much uh, important history to it and has been so strategic in the faith over the years. Um, and Paul actually keeps his head down. You know, he's not looking to make trouble. He's not looking um, to sort of change everything. Um, so and he keeps his head down. He meets with Bishop James, who's, who seems to be kind of in charge of the uh, Christians in Jerusalem and who, who made that an important decision at the Council of Jerusalem uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago um, and there are a few sort of Jewish rituals uh, you know so Paul still has this identity as a Jew and uh, um, though they aren't part of the way to salvation he sort of honours them and uh, uh, sort of um, 
embraces them. But the thing is, this is the Apostle Paul. He is known throughout the regions as a, a missionary for Jesus. He has a reputation uh, um, for just doing incredible things. He has a reputation of that change from being a, uh, a Christian hater uh, to a Christian himself. Uh, from uh, from being just a, a teacher of the law to to someone that travels the length and breadth of empire to talk about Jesus and and see miracles happen and and so the Jews discover that he is in amidst them and this riot uh, kicks off you know they're they're passionate for their faith and they are passionately against Jesus and they are passionately against his emissary Paul and he's viciously attacked and and at this time um, Jerusalem is under the watch of uh, Rome and there's a, um, a sort of a Roman soldiers stationed there that are told to keep the peace um, and they see this guy uh, just being uh, uh, brutally attacked and they step in uh, uh, they imagine either you know uh, either uh, the Jews of our order or this man's a, a real criminal um, and so the, the Roman commander who, who sort of orchestrates almost that sort of uh, extraction of Paul um, from the riot, he, um, he's unclear of why the Jews are accusing this guy. Why is there a riot for, for this guy who, who, who seems to be sort of Jewish in so many practices? Um, and so the, the Roman commander, he demands that a, a Jewish council uh, comes together and to sort of uh, confirm what Paul's crimes are, to uh, um, articulate exactly what he'd done uh, wrong. Um, but the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is the main sort of contingents of this uh, council, uh, they can't agree and, and, and Paul's talks uh, while he's at the council uh, that uh, he's he's being sort of held to account for his belief in the resurrection of the dead and that just unleashes all manner of arguments and we're going to uh, join uh, the scripture at Acts chapter 23 verse 9. If you've got a bible turn with me you know it sort of uh, uh, helps this be slightly more um, sort of real and uh, uh, helpful to people if they sort of join with me in scripture rather than just lie on their couch in their pants and uh, uh, do it like that. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 23 and we're going to read um, from verse 9. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man. See, these guys believed in the resurrection from the dead. And they said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid would Paul would be torn to pieces uh, by them. This is a real religious gathering. You know, these guys are in it uh, seriously. Um, and so this commander, he orders the troops to go down and uh, take Paul away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. Um, and so the following night, and we, we find the Lord. So this is Jesus himself. He stands near Paul and he says, take courage. As you have testi about, testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. 
They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. So uh, these conspirators had gone to the Sadducees. These are the guys um, uh, that were not all about the resurrection like the Pharisees. And so uh, uh, these conspirators uh, uh, knew that uh, the Sadducees would be kind of sympathetic uh, to their plan. Um, uh, so petition the commander to bring them uh, bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions. And it sort of goes on. I've actually read a little bit too much. I uh, got a bit carried away. So um, it seems that the, the meeting of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the council kind of descends not just into argument, but into a proper brawl. Um, sort of wrestling moves going down, punches being thrown, like proper violence uh, uh, taking hold of the meeting. Um, and it's easy to imagine this Apostle Paul, you know, he'd been met by Jesus, he had uh, encountered miracles, and he'd been sort of wanting to celebrate Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem. And then suddenly, all these guys that he used to look up to are just fighting tooth and claw over his words and he's like what is going on what is this message of peace that i'm supposed to be bringing where is the victory of the kingdom of god how am i not uh, uh bringing persuasion to these guys and there's that prospect of this new right just the brutality and it's just randomness and and you can see him uh, in his mind sort of questioning what am I doing here and I wonder if we ever have felt the same you know we we pray uh, and we seek God's wisdom and we seek the wisdom of other Christians and and we we choose particular paths in our lives perhaps hopefully really feeling God's hand behind it and uh, sort of feeling yeah this is definitely the way I should go and then as we are apparently traveling down uh, God's purposes for us we are uh, completely broadsided by unexpected and distressing uh, um, sort of forces you know we think we're stepping out in God's will and something just blindsides us comes out of nowhere and knocks us off our feet and we're like but I thought I was in God's will, but I thought I was doing as God intended, but I thought I was uh, 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 being led by the Spirit. And, and how can this misfortune uh, um, befall me? And this can happen uh, when you uh, uh, find a new partner or a new job, uh, if you get into a new home and uh, almost anything involving kids. You know, uh, um, you think it, it's a good idea and uh, who knows um, what takes hold next. And we can often, in preparation, you know, we prepare our hearts, you know, oh, this new job's going to be difficult. Oh, I'm going to sacrifice myself for my new partner. You know what? I'm going to be 
uh, um, ambitious for my children. You know, I'm going to work hard to uh, sort of renovate the new home. Um, and, and you think you're ready for anything. And then something just catches us unaware. And we just sort of span round and we feel disorientated. And we're like, how can this be? I, I, I thought my mind was prepared for anything. And now I'm just uh, uh, um, completely at a loss. I don't know even which way due north is. And Luke tells us that in this place, as Paul looks and sees um, that his protectors are Gentiles, idol-worshipping Gentiles, military men, and his enemies are the Sadducees and Pharisees that uh, he once embraced as brothers. And um, as he's bemused and as he is disorientated, Jesus comes alongside him that night and there is a simple message not a uh, elaborate preach not a a great sermon um, but just simple words take courage because I want you to go to Rome as well and Jesus kind of uh, takes his eyes off that immediate brawl and says you know what take courage I'm with you and we're gonna make it to Rome this is not gonna be the end for you and Paul is called to bear up under the strain. He is called to um, uh, uh, brave it out. And he said, you know what? You are going to go to the centre of empire. You know this Roman empire that seems to have conquered the world. Where you are going to be picked up and taken to the middle. And you will get to speak to influential men and women. And you will bring the case of Jesus Christ to the very top of this power structure. Jesus has this clear purpose for Paul and he wants Paul to know that it's not going to be perverted or cut short by the chaos that he's seeing right now. The chaos uh, that is um, sort of all around him is not going to prevail over the will of Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop it. Jesus doesn't provide an exit for it. Jesus says, do not worry. My purposes will prevail. And Paul will endure some significant hardships uh, for the next few years. You know, for, for, for the next few years, um, he's in this position of imprisonment and constant um, uh, request to explain himself. But it seems that this message from Jesus this exhortation to take courage that Jesus's purposes uh, uh, will win out. They were enough for him to stand resolute and proud, to be courageous uh, um, for all those that would uh, present their case to him. Now, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. This is uh, um, a bit of scripture that immediately springs to mind uh, when we talk about these things. Hebrews chapter 13 and it says this in verse 5 keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have and there's this uh, articulation of um, stop chasing after things that God doesn't have for you you know be reassured of God's purpose in your life and then he goes on 
because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And then what can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Jesus that was there before the creation of the world. The Jesus that was there at the creation right at the beginning. Jesus who was uh, walking the earth with his disciples 2,000 years ago. That same Jesus with his power and his grace and his forgiveness is the same for us today. Friends, whatever God-given purpose we're pursuing, whether it's parents or uh, spouse, whether it's um, the vocation or ministry, uh, whatever we're up to, Jesus is there. It is the same Jesus that Paul knew. It's the same Jesus that those first disciples knew. It's the same Jesus that was there uh, when uh, the world was created. And he comes alongside us and he speaks encouraging words. Jesus is always with us. And he's always that same kind, generous God. He is the one that speaks and uh, brings relief to our souls. And so we need to take on board both the nearness and affirmation of Jesus. We need to take on board the fact that he is uh, right by us and that he is uh, looking to uh, stand with us in whatever trial we face. And we need to cherish his presence and his promises. And this will mean that we can take courage in any situation. Not that we won't face storms, not that we won't face trials, not that we won't endure hardships, but that we will be able to withstand them and be victorious through them. And so uh, the next bit, and, and I've already re read it out prematurely early on, um, we find this uh, a group of guys and they, they make this uh, oath to sort of uh, 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 kill Paul. And um, if you hopefully were reading earlier uh, in the Acts um, through the week, um, Paul had already sort of um, at the, uh, the moment of the riot and, and the uh, desire to sort of justify his position, he makes this great presentation uh, of his testimony and the gospel. And uh, he, he says that, you know what, Jesus is one who I hated and now I love. Um, he is the long promised Messiah. He is the one that the Jews have been looking for uh, for so long. And uh, uh, Paul confesses that his earlier persecution of the Christians, that had been evil, that his um, hounding and uh, uh, attempts to kill these uh, Christians, that had been wrong. And that uh, Paul had now been redeemed. He had been saved. And that he had even, more than just being rescued, he had been commissioned on this new mission to save the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles far and wide, to call out the name of Jesus and see uh, these people that worship all sorts of different gods to uh, run to the cross 
and uh, uh, have their sins wiped clean. And Paul, this Paul was a living irritant to all those that thought Jesus, he was at best a prophet and at worst a charlatan. This was uh, a guy that just got under their skin. You know, he was supposed to be a Pharisee, he was supposed to be a Jewish teacher. And now he was just talking about Jesus in a way that was convincing many, many different people. And um, he was uh, living a, a devoted and clean life. Um, his teachings were reasonable and compelling. Uh, and the, the response of his enemies became increasingly desperate. They couldn't uh, point out his sins. They couldn't um, expose the flaws in his argument. So they just resort to what all bullies resort to. They resorted to violence. And this murderous plot arise, uh, arises. And the, um, we're given a real clear picture of their murderous intent by this oath that is taken. It's very Old Testament like that they take this oath we will not eat or drink again until Paul is dead and uh, uh, they come up with this scheme um, like some sort of Martin Scorsese film where they're going to orchestrate Paul being moved from one place to another uh, and in the middle they're going to uh, ambush uh, Paul's guards and uh, take out probably a lot of life to themselves the sort of uh, uh, the Roman guards and they are going to kill their enemy uh, Paul and this simple gospel that Paul loves has excited dark oaths gang violence violence and cunning deceit and uh, you, there's really all to play for in what's going to happen friends as we follow Jesus and as we speak up for him and as we go yes he's my saviour um, we can often find that we awaken cursing and deviousness in the lost. You know, these guys are blind. They don't know uh, which way is up or down. They don't know what truth and falsehood is. They are uh, blinded uh, by the devil and they can come against us and, and, and they can be provoked by our articulation of grace and love and forgiveness. Um, and they end up lying in wait for us because uh, such is the hardness of their heart. Um, look with me at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew uh, chapter 10. It says this in verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And there's this clear call for believers to announce with their mouths that they love Jesus. You know, it's brilliant to be forgiving and loving and generous. Uh, but there is also an expectation that we say with our mouths what has gone on. In our hearts and, and that is what Paul had did um, after uh, this riot in Jerusalem. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And all those that sort of pray for peace on earth suddenly like what, what, what are you talking about Jesus are you a man of peace or not? Um, but his point is very specific for I have come to turn a man against his father a daughter against her mother 
a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And we find here Jesus saying, I am divisive. And uh, there is only one allegiance uh, that you should hold up the highest. He goes on, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If any of you are parents, that's quite a hard thing to do. You're supposed to love Jesus more than your own children. He comes first, not them. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And this is a picture of sort of self-sacrifice. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let us be clear. This morning, our allegiance to Jesus is our primary concern. Our relationship with Jesus is our primary relationship. Everything, and that hopefully that's an easy thing, and everyone, which can be a lot more difficult, everyone in our lives must come second to him. Our spouses, our children, our parents, our uncles and aunts and all the other uh, uh, relationships that we enjoy. These people must be second to Jesus. You know, our, our usual habits are disturbed at this time. You know, the, the normal routines that we have adopted, perhaps as believers, um, has been uh, uh, kind of uh, um, taken out. Um, and uh, many of us are going to have to work harder at our relationship with Jesus rather than uh, just coast. Like, so not meeting in church, I, I think it makes following Jesus a little harder because we're not there to sort of encourage each other and say, you know, well done, you're doing really well. Or, or just have a friendly face who, who, who also believes that they've been uh, um, sort of redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And, and, and so we need probably in these days to work harder uh, rather than take it easy. And I wonder how it's going, your relationship with Jesus that's supposed to be the number one thing. I wonder, has it taken precedence? Would you, um, would a observer, a heavenly observer, see that your relationship with Jesus is more important now than ever before? Um, you know, I've kind of worked hard to try and lessen the impact of this uh, COVID-19 um, pandemic. You know, we've kind of, um, for the for the spiritual aspect, you know, we've kind of released uh, re reading plans, which hopefully um, has sort of kept you on the the straight and narrow for uh, uh, sort of your Bible readings in the mornings or in the evenings. And uh, we've tried to have these online meetings of discipleship groups and prayer meetings, and we have the sort of this Sunday uh, YouTube thing, which is this is certainly not the delight of my soul to sort of preach to a, a camera on a Sunday. Uh, morning but we do these things to kind of help you and, and assist you and some of, and, and, and kind of uh, um, help you love Jesus and keep him uh, number one but the reality is that your relationship with Jesus does not constitute uh, 
watching me or joining into Zoom conferences. It is your daily lives, your daily readings, your um, daily prayer, your thinking of him, your following him as different things kick off and you're asked to react in one way or another. And as we do this, as we perhaps prioritise our devotions a little more highly, as we um, articulate and live out the exclusive truths of Christianity, because Christianity is not a religion that kind of um, just sits nicely with all the other ones, because it says things that it means it's true or uh means it's true or another religion's true they both can't be true and as we live with these different things and as we kind of try and pursue moral living um, we can be expected to be mistreated we can be expected for our parents and our children and our spouses if they don't know Jesus to uh, uh, be antagonistic towards us and Jesus calls us to be mentally prepared for that. He says, you know, you've got to love me. You've got to love me more than your own family members, more than what those people in your lives that you love most. And you need to make your choices in light of that. Yet yeah, it's OK to bear them in mind in how you behave and what you say. Uh, but they are not to be your number one allegiance. Now, when I was a, a, a child in the in the 80s, um, there was a, um, a period known as the Cold War. And this was this tension uh, between uh, the sort of liberal and democratic democratic West and the uh, the East with the uh, sort of prevalence of communism. And there were sort of nuclear tensions over that and sort of fear of the bomb falling. And uh, it was a little bit remote to me, um, though I got scared silly by reading various sort of uh, 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 atomic apocalyptic sort of novels. Um, um, but so there was this tension. And um, one of the uh, uh, forefathers of this, um, many would say, was the guy Karl Marx. You know, he wrote the, uh, the Communist Manifesto. Um, which supposedly inspired what happened sort of in Russia and China. And he wrote Das Kapital, which was like this critic critique of uh, the way capitalism runs, how it just exploits the worker, how it just ruins stuff and sort of uh, uh, um, uh, just destroys uh, uh, lives. Um, and so he passionately criticizes capitalism and he, and he dreams of a, uh, a social revolution and and over the years especially during this cold war period uh, uh american and british academics and media personalities they would just lay into karl marx just saying he's sort of uh evil and terrible and uh inhuman uh even in uh 2005 apparently there was a poll uh, a BBC poll for, for for great thinkers, and Karl Marx got to one of the uh, the top slots. You know, uh, just the recognition of his thought and of his critique uh, and stuff. And the Daily Mail heard that uh, Karl Marx had been given this exalted position in this ranking, and uh, that there was an absolutely livid two-page spread uh, in the Daily Mail and it was entitled Marx the Monster and it just laid into this guy and his thinking and how just dreadful uh, and inhuman he was and and so it's very easy when you live in the West to have this picture of Karl Marx as this sort of 
uh, nasty revolutionary who just dreams of the destruction of all things nice and uh, um, seeing the sort of the worker uh, sort of just um, the rule with uh, um, just sort of concrete and utilitarianism. And so as capitalists and Democrats and the religious, so, you know, uh, there was a, um, a critique of religion uh, there. Uh, they seek to revile him and demonise him. I want you to listen to these accounts of uh, Karl Marx. Um, I read this book quite a long time ago, um, but I just remember uh, uh, these few things. Uh, from This is from the life of Karl Marx. Um, in, the back in the back garden, Though little more than a few square yards of grass and gravel, um, there was a delicious novelty. One of uh, Karl Marx's uh, daughters, her earliest childhood memories, was of Karl Marx carrying her on his shoulder round the garden in Grafton Terrace and putting flowers in her hair. Um, the uh, uh, nickname for Karl Marx um, by their family was Moore, and it says Moore was a splendid horse. In earlier days, I cannot remember them, but I've heard tell of them. My sisters and my little brother um, would harness Moore to chairs, which they mounted, and then he had to pull. And this is a great picture of a dad just mucking about with his children uh, in like the uh, the concrete back garden. Personally, perhaps because I had no sisters of my own age, I preferred more as a riding horse seated on his shoulder holding tight to his great mane of hair then black but without a hint of gray but with a hint of gray i had had magnificent rides around our little garden and over the fields now built over that surrounded our house um, on sundays the marxes and then his and friends would stroll over to hampstead heath for a picnic um, often their only substantial meal of the week and it says a little later um, they, they come in uh, to a little bit of an inheritance and it says this the Marxes wasted no time in spending their windfall Jenny Karl Marx's wife had the new house furnished and redecorated um, explaining that I thought it better to put the money to this use rather than to fritter it away on piecemeal trivals pets were bought for the children three dogs two cats and two birds and they named them after Carl's favourite drinks, including whiskey and toddy. Um, in July, he took the family on vacation to Ramsgate for three weeks. Doesn't that paint a different picture of Karl Marx? You know, you think of him as this international revolutionary who who kind of inspired these totalitarian states that are sort of responsible for the murder of millions. But he gives his little girls rides on his back and he had family holidays to Ramsgate. And you suddenly think, you know what, perhaps he's not the one that is guilty of this murder. Perhaps he was not the one... Um, that wanted all this death and destruction perhaps his ambitions for society were a lot more civil and domestic uh, than uh, others would project on him now the apostle paul dominates our new testament uh, uh new testaments but um it's how we know little of his family and so it's it's hard sometimes to put flesh on the bones of him we can hear his words but we'd love to know that he kind of uh um he gave rides 
to children in the congregations on his back or uh, sort of uh, had picnics with them or uh, or whatever else and so it's sometimes difficult to flesh out his character in our minds um, we can infer from various references that Paul's dad was a, a, a wealthy guy in the city of Tarsus um, and it looks like Paul was disinherited um, the moment he became like this Christian and he lost all the wealth and all the backing and everything he could have expected up to that point. Um, and so today we've got this little um, tiny insight, sliver, you know, it's like one of the only references in the entire of scripture of, uh, of Paul's uh, sort of personal life. And we find that Paul's nephew's in Jerusalem. He's probably being educated there, just like uh, Paul was. And he overhears this plot. So it's the plot of the Jews, plot of his fellow men that he would identify with against his uncle, who's become a wacky Christian, you know, who's, uh, um, who's uh, seen a bit of an infidel. What would the nephew do? How does he think of Uncle Paul? Well, this nephew demonstrates great guts. He betrays these Jews for the sake of his uncle, who loves Jesus. And he even comes before the Romans to defeat the Jews. And that's quite a switch. And, and, and suddenly it's, it seems that um, uh, this nephew's loyalty uh, uh, was um, very strongly slanted um, for his uncle's benefit. It seems that Paul was indeed... Um, despised by his own parents. They'd sort of disinherited him um, for his new faith. Um, but, they f but it seems this nephew could look past that. And the nephew looked at Paul and found someone that he wanted saving, even if he had to betray his um, own people. Friends, it is good uh, to choose wisely our friends. And it is good to find a spouse that loves Jesus and have close friends that love him too. Uh, because uh, people that don't love Jesus just don't have the same perspective. And, and they will struggle again and again with the decisions um, that we make. Um, but Paul gives us his hope that even the people that don't love Jesus, our character, the authenticity of our faith, the passion uh, um, we have for uh, Jesus and the generosity and love that we live with. This will invite the affections of the unbelievers. Even uh, family that have been told to sort of uh, curse us and write us off. There will be people that will be attracted to by how we live and will be drawn in even to help us out. It is to be expected that our love of truth will repel some. But our love of people should draw others in. And it should uh, be reasonable to expect that we can live peace, peacefully um, in these days. And we can live well and, and we can seen uh, kindly by the non-Christians around us. Let us read the very last bit. Um, of this bit of text that we're looking at today, um, Acts chapter 23, 
Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man, this nephew, uh, to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took them to the commander and the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took Paul's nephew by the hand and drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. This is a sizable force. You know, uh, this guy wants to protect Paul. Uh, go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts of Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Finally, Paul is making this journey. This journey that Jesus told him he would be making to Rome. First he goes to the, the sort of the Roman regional HQ which is Caesarea. Um, and he's going to uh, make his way slowly to the very centre of wealth and power. Um, and there is this large show of uh, Roman army strength to sort of dissuade these Jews from ambushing and, and to protect their cargo of Paul. And Paul... He neither runs nor protests. Jesus has calmed his fears. You know, whatever awaits him, he is reassured that Jesus is in control. It is a prominent feature of scripture again and again that lovers of God are exposed to apparent evil elements. You know, and again and again, we are not protected from sickness. We are not protected from persecution. We are not protected, protected from destitution or poverty or famine. But God exposes us to these, even to accomplish his, his own purposes. As I close, I want us to find in this incident a reassurance that even when hard times occur, when hostile soldiers flank us and we're going being marched to somewhere we had no intentions of going, we are not condemned to fear or anxiousness. So what about our circumstances today? Well, COVID-19 may have made our life harder. It may have robbed us of loved ones. It may have taken away our Sunday meetings. We should be at Big Church Day out this morning. Uh, today shouldn't we it may have robbed us of river camp you know on the uh what's it the 7th of june um we're supposed to be celebrating our uh, 15th anniversary um i mean sort of technically i think it occurs sort of generally at the end of may but we were going to celebrate it in june and, and we will do something like that um on the 7th of june um but it's kind of robbed of all these things and, and, and we can like feel a, a sense of loss and remiss. And we don't have to pretend things are fine and we don't have to uh, just put on a brave face and recite Bible verses. But the writings of the psalmist that we spent so long on would encourage us to express our mournings and cry out. However, while our sorrow 
is an obvious consequence. It should not lead us to fear. Many years ago, I was um, a student in London. I went to um, the great and infamous Westminster Chapel. Um, the great Bible teacher, R.T. Kendall, was there and I sat and enjoyed his sermons week in, week out. Before R.T. Kendall um, was at Westminster Chapel, there is the legendary uh, Dr. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones and he preached there for 29 years. Uh, most famously, and, and I love this, he took uh, 12 years um, to go through Romans. He had like a Friday uh, a Bible um, class. Um, so like they took over the church and it was filled. Thousands of people would go um, and uh, he would take 12 years to uh, sort of preach through and teach through uh, the book of Romans. And uh, as we see Paul hated by the Jews and marched by the Roman army to face further interrogation. I want to finish uh, with the words of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, it says this. This is the peculiar thing about the Christian, me Christian method of dealing with anxiety. In all things, says the apostle, these things that are worrying, make your requests known and God will banish and remove them all. God, but Paul does not say that. He does not mention them. He just says nothing about them. To me, that is one of the most thrilling things about the Christian life. The glory of the gospel is this, that it is concerned about us and not about our circumstances. The final triumph of the gospel is seen in this. And whatever our circumstances, we ourselves can be put right and maintained does not mention our condition. It does not talk about these things that are harassing and perplexing. It does not say a single word about them. They may or may not happen. I do not know. Paul does not say that the thing feared is going not going to take place. He says that we shall be kept whether it happens or whether it does not happen. Thank God that is the victory. I am taken above circumstances. I am triumphant in spite of them. That is the great principle. We all tend to be tyrannised by circumstances because we depend on them and we would like them to be governed and controlled. But that is not the way in which the scripture deals with the situation. What the apostle says is this. Make your requests known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. He will keep you absolutely safe from these things which are keeping you awake and preventing your sleep. They will be kept outside and you will be kept in peace in spite of them. He does not say, and I say this advisedly, pray because prayer changes things. I wonder if you've heard that. Prayer changes things. Well, Paul, uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, no, it does not. So that's the uplifting thought. Um, prayer does not change things. This is not what the apostle says. That is again psychology and is nothing to do with the gospel at all. What the apostle says is this, you pray and make your requests known unto God and God will do something. It is not your prayer that is going to do it. It is not you who are going to do it, but God. The peace of God that passeth all understanding.
He, through it all, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes God will remove the difficult situation. Sometimes he doesn't. But he always promises to be with us. He always promises to be alongside us. He always promises us his peace if we will let it abide in our hearts. And with peace and calm we can endure any storm. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And we thank you that he is always with us. Lord God, I pray that we would love him more and more. That he would be our primary relationship. That he uh, would be the most precious person in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for all you've done. And we long in this difficult time to know you better than ever. And Jesus, we pray as we struggle with many different circumstances, often them, uh, many of them unsettling and unnerving and outside our control. Lord God, we pray um, that we would be able to take courage because of your presence and your promises. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.